Um, again, what are we fighting for? What are we fighting for? Um, or, and what are we fighting with? Um, so when we talk about uh, this whole wrestling, one of the imperatives of uh, disciple-making, what are we wrestling with? Um, it's obviously not flesh and blood. And the uh, reason that that's important to remember is I, I just I can't emphasize enough that there is this great unseen battle that is at work uh, within the heavenlies, that is work, at work within the spirit realm. And that should both make us aware and relieve us, again, from trying to have the full strength of our disciple making abilities just resting totally on our shoulders. Uh, but we also need to know that what we're up against. So, again, what are we up against? We're up against a spirit of moral relativity. That is fighting against traditional or the definition of truth. Why would Satan want to tear that down? Because if you can make morality or truth relative, then uh, there is no exclusive singular truth and therefore no need to respond to a single God because it is inherent that God is a moral law giver. Um, Why would uh, Satan want to war against or work against definitions of righteousness? Because we live in a performance based culture. And uh, we like to associate reward with our own performance, but the Lord has kind of built salvation in such a way that no one would ever be able to boast. It's by design. Why would Satan want to war against um, peace uh, so that um, the world would just take as normative that the absence of visible conflict equals peace as opposed to there needing to be a real peace between us and God? Um, Satan wants the world to accept a certain level of brokenness as being unfixable and that there is no future hope that God would ever do anything about that. But God has actually allowed these elements of brokenness to exist so that our world, so that the heart would cry out for some kind of resolution that is beyond ourselves. And so the historic witness, uh, you know, we talk about history repeating itself. Uh, This is absolutely true. Why is history repeating itself? Because the Lord has yet to return. And it will continue to repeat itself because humanity needs to be constantly or God wants humanity to be constantly reminded of its deep need for a savior that is larger than our collective systems, larger than our collective selves. I mean, think about this. Look at this. Look at this beautiful tapestry of brokenness that the Lord has given us. The greatest civilizations of all time always had an Achilles heel. Right. From Egypt to Rome to Assyria, uh, whoever's run the world, whoever's been the leading world power, America now. I mean, you, you know, uh, we are still the darlings of the you know, planet, but we're, we've kind of dipped from being the darlings now. People recognize us as, as, as still being the greatest, you know, whether it be economically or from a democracy standpoint. But but if you but if you pay attention now, people begin to really point at the deficiencies of democracy. So one of the greatest styles of government ever, the world is going, man, that doesn't work either. You see that? And again, this is not a a smack. This is not to smack at patriotism, but this is a part of the great panorama, this theater that God is creating in which Jesus has all authority and all power. He's giving us this constant theater that says your best style of economy still crushes the poor. It may not be communism. It may not be, you know, all these other pieces. But man, it still has these these features that doesn't fix everything. Uh, So democracy capitalism, uh, diversity and inclusion runs off the rails, right? Uh, Personal autonomy, all of these things, these features that make for great and wonderful productive societies have deficiencies when they are not empowered by or plugged into the gospel. And the Lord would have it that way. 
He would have it that way so that our hope would be in something other than our economies, other than our government structures and systems, other than our policies and procedures. The brokenness is a part of what makes the harvest ripe. And so we should take joy in that. I know this is kind of a, like a really sadistic smile, but, but the brokenness of our country creates the backdrop. The brokenness of our world, not just our country, the brokenness of our world creates the backdrop against which hope in God becomes all the more popular. Hope in something. So uh, it's a beautiful thing, and this is why um, the adversary would war against peace. Uh, I want you to understand that each aspect of this armor that we're looking at there is some sort of uh, a facsimile or a, an attempted replacement for it in, in culture. Something is always trying to replace that. So when we talk about the shield of faith, which is why I think we stopped uh, or just shy of that, uh, in verse 16 it says, take up the shield of faith. Uh, what is the modern-day facsimile for faith? Positive thinking and optimism. So optimism is this. It is simply trying to hope for a positive outcome but faith, according to the Bible, is trusting God regardless of outcome. OK, so optimism is just constantly hoping for positive outcomes. But real faith is trusting God regardless of outcome. Now, why is that a powerful axiom, if you will? Why would Satan, can anybody think of why would Satan want to destroy the functionality of faith? Why would he want to get that vocabulary out of the culture and get people to shift into another gear and just talk about optimism? Why? The Bible tells us that faith has a fundamental core function. Without it, it is impossible to please God. That's right. So if I can destroy the efficacy and the popularity of faith, I am without revealing myself as Satan, undermining the culture's ability to really connect with God. I'll just make people be positive and be wishful thinkers but not necessarily have trust in a God who can sustain them throughout any outcome versus just trying to hold God hostage to a particular outcome. When you think about the great distortions of the gospel, right? When we talk about uh, the gospel of peace or, we, or even faith, or when we think about the word of faith movement, what is it? It is a distortion of faith that makes faith actually a kind of optimism or a religious optimism that holds God hostage to a particular outcome, Right? But real faith is being able to trust God regardless of the pleasing, uh, the, the pleasure of the outcome. All right. So uh, this is a, an important uh, practical step for us uh, as believers in our disciple making. Again, as you're witnessing both in your word and in your lifestyle, people need to know what promises of the Bible fuel your faith and trust. All right. So if real faith is trusting God regardless of outcome, People need to know you're not just a dude with big shoulders or a lady who's mature and you know how to endure it all. People need to publicly know what promises you are trusting God for that fuel your faith. We are told to take up the shield of faith that it would extinguish all the fiery darts of the adversary. So if the culture is at war with faith and want to reduce us to optimism, the last thing we want to do as believers is to hide our trust in Christ and make people think that we just have a strong moral constitution. That's a tough person right there. Man, that, that person's hardcore. I wish I had your resolve. Don't let that happen. People should not want your resolve. They should want your God. They should want your faith, right? But how else will they know that unless we are public about the promises that fuel us? And so these are the practical ways we talk about disciple making. 
Let people know how you're trusting God in your life currently. Naturally entering into the conversation. I mean, how many people, uh, you know, I mean, just just basic things that you're doing in life. Hey, we're trying to buy a house right now. Oh, really? Yeah, me and my wife, we're praying about that, too. And it might be awkward for them. Who cares if it's awkward? Because when people see those things work out in your life and you have this incredible story, you don't want to try to add faith in on the back end. No, if that's a constant theme within your life, it's like, man, these people trust God for everything. And it's not like you were trusting God because your credit score was like a 500. It was, I mean, you could be like a 780 or whatever, the, the, you know, a good number is. You know, I think you can get a house with like a 635. I'm not doing mortgages. I'm just, you know, just putting it out there. But. <laughs> But but the bottom line is like 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 there are all these nuances. I mean, how many people just know that there are just regular everything, regular everyday things in life that demand trust in God as you're working through the outcome? Your people, the, those three people on that list. I don't know if I said this earlier, but I want you to think about this message within the context of the three people you have on your list. Because you're the, those are the ones that you're doing life with in some context. And so. What is their idea and their definition of faith and how they see it working in your life? Again, optimism is just hoping for positive outcomes, but faith is trusting God regardless of outcomes. That was fast. Optimism is hoping for a positive outcome, but faith is trusting God regardless of outcomes. All right. Um, and so, again, um, it needs to be very clear that that. Um, how and why we're trusting God. Now, why why does it need to be clear? Is it just we're just trying to uh, wear our faith on our sleeve? No. Throughout the Bible, God has been big about building a reputation. Remember, as early as Israel, when Moses said, who shall I tell them has sent me? Tell them that it's the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. God wants name recognition. Tell them I am have sent you the eternal God. Right. Tell him that I am. And then he later advanced his name. Tell it's the God who brought you out of Egypt. So God is always about building a reputation. When he gave the Ten Commandments, what was the one commandment he gave about his name? Not to take it in vain. Now, I'm going to recognize that to, to take the Lord's name in vain isn't about saying special cuss words that include the, the, you know, the name of the divine. That was about living a life that was not consistent with the name that God had given them. Living below the name. God is a God of reputation. Right. Uh, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Like like the Lord isn't even saving us privately. He's saving us very publicly. And then he's also making the knowledge of Jesus very public. So your witness should be public because you're constantly a part of that reputation of God. And therefore, people need to know that he is not just the God of Brantford or the God of Connecticut or the God of Protestants or the God of this or that. They need to know that he is the God of Jim who helped him fill in the blank. Like, like we must contextualize our witness, but that only happens when people know how we are trusting him. So you want practical steps on how to make disciples? Let people into your prayer life. These are the things that I'm praying about. Oh, by the way, how could I be praying for you and your family? I've never, never come. I, I, I've, I've dealt with some, some rough customers when it came to the faith, but I've never had anybody reject the opportunity to just pray for something that's going on in their life. It's a great low entry point for sharing the gospel, because guess what happens when they tell you something that you can pray for? You have a natural door to going back and saying, hey, man, how did how's it working out? Just want to let you know, me and my, my wife, we were still we've been praying about that for you. Oh, 
It just creates, and again, because consistency of dropping seeds and consistency of lifestyle is a critical part of disciple making. I'm sorry if I didn't roll out like some disciple making map and show you like this high level strategy with lines and dots going everywhere on how to lead people to the Lord and get them to come to your church. And in five years, your church will be this big. I'm sorry that I didn't bring that. But but what I am what I'm saying to you is that making disciples is so lifestyle oriented and organic. But we have learned how to do faith almost like a phantom. We have just been doing it so privately. And we've been made to feel guilty about being public about who we are in the Lord. And another thing that we've done is that we have gotten to a point where we are limited in the number of relationships that we have outside of believers. We have to have non-believing relationships. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. We have to have relationships with non-believers. We need regular platforms of access with people who don't know the faith. Right? We need that. That's the only way that this works. Otherwise, the three people, like the three people on your list, there are people who are already believers. You just hadn't seen them in a few weeks. <laughs> I don't know if that's happening to anybody, but, but, but yeah, do you know any unbelievers? That's a, that's a, a crucial part of, of making disciples. So um, let's be public about the promises. This is a crucial part of taking up the shield of faith. The crucial part for you in taking up the shield of faith is that we would obviously have a regular infusion of God's word that is fueling our belief and trust in God. That is super critical because when people see us shaking in our boots, um, that doesn't bode well for faith. Now, does that mean that we are never scared? No, it is. But we can trust God regardless of outcomes. And the world needs to see that. It's okay for them to see that. Um, and it's okay for the world to see us in situations where the odds are not stacked in our favor. I mean, one of the most compelling witnesses, uh, you know, in the moment of David and Goliath, it wasn't like he was just like, you know, oh, you know, and in this corner, 285 pounds, and in Goliath, you know, 310. No, it was way more exaggerated than that. Right? And so the Lord is, is very okay with entering into the tension of the underdog. I think sometimes we are also shy on sharing uh, what's going on in our life where we feel like too much of an underdog. We want to share the story once it's fully baked and we're finally getting to a point where we're about to win. No, people need to see you as the underdog as well. It's a great platform for people to understand how big your God is. Because remember, that's what we're sharing, that's what we're giving witness to. So you're not witnessing for and toward your church. You're not witnessing for and toward uh, a group of ideas and facts. You are a part of building the grand reputation of God. Remember that. The helmet of salvation. Again, one of the great facsimiles in our culture today is everybody wants some kind of salvation, uh, even if they won't use the phrase. Everybody's trying to live their best life now or they've got a bucket list. I don't have anything. I don't have any issues with living your best life now or having a bucket list. I just I don't want to put that out there. This is not an indictment on those phrases, but these are sometimes substitutes for living a life of salvation, a, a, a life that is blessed. Now, a blessed life might even rub you the wrong way. Well, what does it mean to live a blessed life? In the garden, God blessed Adam and Eve, uh, told them to be fruitful and multiply. It is a life where God is enabling you to perform at your highest potential for him. God will bless you. God will bless your life to do the things that you are uniquely designed to do for him. Because he wants there to be a historic reputation that his people are in his hand. Look at these folks that I'm blessing. God is doing it. He's building a great billboard and an advertisement in us. And so there's nothing wrong with living a life that is blessed. But again, blessed for whose causes? Remember this. Uh, so in the world, 
The cultural narrative around uh, uh, salvation is, again, the blessed life or the bucket list life. But what every human being is trying to capture is this value, identity and purpose. Have you heard this before? Everyone is trying to capture some sense of value, identity and purpose. Right. Do you understand what the great rub is in our culture around racism? It's like, hey, man, you've undervalued me. You don't value me. Do you know what the rub is in our culture around uh, feminism? Do you know why there's this, this great uplift in in feminism uh, uh, versus misogyny? Because women feel under what? Valued. These are all allergic reactions to everyone wanting value. Do you know why there is a huge uh, a, a group of people uh, sending in uh, saliva on Q-tips to find out what's in their cultural heritage? Because we want to feel valuable. Have you seen the commercials? I'm not against it. I am not against anything. But you know what it is? Black people want to know that they're related to somebody other than a slave. And white people want to know that they've not always been white. In America, you may, you're made to feel guilty. If you're black, you're on the bottom. If you're white, you're, you're suffering from white privilege and you're just an evil, bad person. And so everybody's sitting there in their cotton swabs. I'm actually Irish, German, Polish. You can no longer accuse me of what's wrong with America. I'm not white privilege, I'm Irish privilege. Right? And then for black people, nobody wants, everybody wants to be related to the slave who invented the cotton gin. I'm kin to Eli Whitney. And the first person to actually put the steeple on the White House. Have you, have you not seen these commercials? Well, what is that for? It's a great quest for value. It's a great quest for value, identity, and purpose. Because we feel so much better about ourselves when we're connected to this incredibly huge legacy. Right? You see, so, you, so you see this, this overwhelming groundswell in our culture to try to redeem ourselves by changing our reputation, by being attached to something that's what? Bigger than us. If I can attach myself to another legacy other than the one that I was born with, then I feel great about me. We're all on a quest for increased value. All. Well, guess what? The gospel responds to that by saying, hey, you've got value in Christ. You've got this incredible value in Christ. I mean, what is abortion? It's a value crisis. What's the, what is at the core? What is at the core of the, of, of the abortion debate? When life begins... Because everybody will agree that it's bad to hurt babies when it's officially a baby. So what do we do? We try to change the timeline of when it's officially a baby. Why? Because at that point, we recognize that there is what? Value. Clear identity and clear purpose. Right? At the other end of the, uh, of the debate, when, when it comes to uh, uh, whether it be uh, abortion rights, what's the other end? It's okay. Well, it's the baby's rights above my rights. What is that? That's a value conflict. My rights are just as valuable or more value than the baby's, right? What's the other argument within the uh, reproductive rights argument? A man doesn't have the right to tell me what to do with my body. What is that? His opinion. I, I, this is offensive because you're saying that his opinion of my purpose in life, my purpose is it's a value conflict. So, do you see this? Almost all of the great conflicts in culture surround value, identity, and purpose. We talked about the LGBTQ situation earlier. What's the great conundrum within that? My identity, right? It's a, the whole thing is identity. This is how I do what? I identify as this. Everything in culture is about value, identity, and purpose. And therefore, everything in the gospel is about value, identity, and purpose. 
You see, the gospel comes to declare that human beings have intrinsic value that is not conferred by one's country or one's ethnicity. Here's how much a human being costs the blood of my son, Jesus Christ. Identity. When I come into Christ, I lose my identity and I take on him. Anyone that is in Christ has become a new creature. So now my, my heritage, my, my heritage, my lineage, my legacy now become tools rather than my, my, my identity is no longer a liability. It's actually a tool that I witness through. Does that make sense? Because what? God is trying to create this great tapestry of people that have been saved from a variety, a whole host. As a matter of fact, not a, not a variety. The Bible says that there will be people from every nation represented around the throne. And so the identity that God is trying to establish is, look at this incredible tapestry of people that I've saved. I'm indiscriminately the savior from coast to coast and across the globe. And so, um, and then when it comes to purpose, we have been saved from, saved by, and saved for. Saved from sin, saved by Christ, and saved for doing his work and for his glory. Every human life has purpose, regardless of age, regardless of uh, socioeconomics. It's like there are work. The Bible tells us that there is work that has been set aside beforehand for each one of us to walk in. We have undeniable purpose. But but what? But how do we answer the purpose argument in culture? Position, career, paycheck, W two. I'm fulfilled because of that I was able to meet my financial goals finally. Not against meeting financial goals. I'm just saying that none of these, these should all be subordinated, subordinated to one's identity in Christ, the value that's in Christ, and the purpose that we have in Christ. So I share all of this with you because these are the, these, this is the war that is happening within culture. All of the great questions that the gospel seeks to answer the world or Satan is trying to arm the culture to answer them in other ways so that the gospel appears and feels irrelevant. Your job as a witness is to constantly saturate the room with the witness of the gospel so that people are forced to reconsider. Right. Um, One of the things that I am regularly compelled by is when I go to a restaurant and uh, the place is just wallpapered with pictures of famous people and others who are been there. Have you ever been to this restaurant? And it's like, man, it's like, oh, I'm in, I'm in a great place. I've been here. Or you, you go in a, another place. If you go to a doctor, like, like what you wallpaper with a paper with creates culture, right? You go into a restaurant and it's like all dollars or uh, you sit on a park bench or a tree and it's filled with names of people who used to date in the 1912s. And, and, and it's like, oh, my gosh. I mean, it impacts our heart. So whatever you, you decorate a place with, it creates culture for the place. Because what happens when you see um, uh, somebody carve out, you know, Jenny and Rick, you know, 1967 in the heart? You're like, oh, should we do that? Carrie and Rod, 98. You know what I mean? So culture compels people to act in certain ways. So we are a part of sharing the gospel is culture creating. We're wallpapering the culture with constant references to what God wants to to do and say. We cannot be silent. So in other words, our collective effort to share the gospel, while we may not see individual people coming to Christ, we are creating a culture that counteracts this, this effort to try to make the gospel seem like an irrelevant conversation. 
So that's a major reason why we institutionally want to continue to share the gospel. We're creating gospel culture and we want to do that. So we've all been saved from, all been saved by and all been saved for. Here's what I would ask you as a practical step and part of your witnessing towards your three people. Again, not only are you going to be begin sharing with them and showcasing the promises that fuel your faith. We talked about that. Here's another one for you. Ask the people on your list. How do they gain VIP status, value, identity and purpose? How are they? What do they do in life to 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 get what 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 makes them feel valuable? What gives them their identity? And then ask them how that's working. Be bold enough to ask that. Be bold enough to ask people what what is plaguing their life and affecting their faith right now. And how can you pray for them? Not only sharing the things that you're praying through, but how can you pray for them? Be bold enough to ask those questions and be consistent enough to pray about those things and to follow up with them on on their outcomes. Recognizing that your prayers about those issues isn't the power per se that's making it happen. God sees you working in this way. He wants people to know him as the God who actually answers prayer. I'll be honest with you. Have you ever met? I don't know if you ever met. I have met uh, uh, many, many times. I've had a person walk into my office and ask me, has God ever really answered any of your prayers? I was like, yeah. And so did I could. And so did I could remember them. I started to keep a journal of things that the Lord has done. I actually created there's a little plaque in our house that, that shows dates and scenarios and, and, and prayers that God has answered for our kids and for a pivotal moment. I can't put all the prayers that God has answered, but there are pivotal ones that, that I want to regularly take as we talk about discipleship starts in the family. Take the kids over to us like, look at this. You were just getting here. You were one and uh, taking a ton of antibiotics or they wanted you to and, and none of them were working. And me and your grandpa prayed and you got better. Period. End of you are the beneficiary of working prayer that needs to happen, not only amongst our family, with our kids. But again, we that needs to be a regular part of our lives that, that we're sharing with people how God's answering prayer in our lives. And don't be afraid to pray in a, in a way that will put you kind of in a weird spot. Does that make sense? Pray big. Go hard in the paint because it's not about uh, your power. Finally, uh, the sword of the spirit. What is the. Um, uh, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Uh, words are powerful. We know that in this country. And where is the great debate around words in our country right now? Where's the great debate? The tension in our culture around words is freedom of speech. Right. Everybody's belly aching about you trying to censor me. You're trying to you're trying to keep me from saying this or everybody's belly aching about you said this and it offended me. So what is the culture saying? Words have power. Who says them is meaningful? I mean, let's just be honest. I won't be raw and I won't be crude, but isn't it amazing that two people can say the same thing? Here's a cultural witness that God's word matters. Here's a cultural witness. Two people can say the same word and it's uh, uh, one person. It's funny. And to another one, it's racist or it's homophobic. Let's just go there. Let's just go there, shall we? All right. Uh, a couple of guys are sitting around in a bar. And uh, another guy, uh, another, uh, let's just say this, this four gay guys sitting on the bar, right? And, and, and another gay guy walks in, and he's wearing like a bow tie and driving a Mazda Miata. And his friends go, oh, man, you are so gay. If you ever heard gay people call each other gay? Like, they, they do that. And it's like, oh, you are so gay, right? They all bust out laughing. Me, I'm sitting over here, and I'll be like, man, you driving a Miata? Man, that's gay, you know? <laughs> and what happens? I'm a homophobe. Why? Because... Same words, but who says them has power. Same applies to God. His word has power, not because of just what the words mean, but because of who said them. 
the culture has already given you a case for why God's word matters. And so this is why we're told to take up the sword of the spirit, because God's speech matters. It is our job with the three people on our list that we're praying for their salvation and to come closer to the Lord, regardless of how far away they are, is to help them connect the dots of when we see the word of God proving true in the culture. Now, you've got to do two things. You've got to be a student of culture and a student of God's word to be able to connect those dots. But when things are happening in the culture that mirror what God said in his word, be the be the tour guide. Help people connect those dots. Oh, the Bible already talked about that. The Bible mentions that you constantly create a culture of that. You know what you're doing? You're creating curiosity for people that will go to God's word and see if these things are true. Boom. Look at that. Now I'm ready for questions. Oh, is that your phone ringing or is that my time? Oh, yeah. Perfect. All right. All right. Good. And that was and that was it. That was it before I went to my next one. And the next one I'm really excited about. So I'm going to be it's going to be hard not to go fast. Um, But I'm going to I'm going to try so hard. All right. So I'm ready to take questions now. Yeah. How do you discern, because how easy, it's so easy to say, I'll pray for you and mm-hmm. we'll pray for them. But when do you pull out and go, let me pray for you right now? Yes. Do you ever do that? And how do you discern when is that right and when is that really not going to go well? Mm-hmm. It's, it's adverse to what you're trying to accomplish. I always just ask for permission. I always, would you be okay, you know, uh, would you be okay if I prayed with you about that right now? And ooh wee, guess what? It, it sometimes, I get a little sweat on the forehead. Because I'm like, man, I'm really stepping out here. But I'm like, OK, I'm going to do this, you know, or, hey, if you want to stop by the office, I'd love to love to pray for you. Right. So if it's, you know, if it's man, woman, I don't, you know, lay hands on them or anything like that. But if it's a dude or whatever, I really play for him. And you know what happens? Um, I had a guy who was about to get me in trouble. Well, back up. So I ran a, a, a large sales team at one point and uh, we had had a lot of attrition in the office and I had just. um um, there was a certain number of salespeople that I needed to attack a, a particular territory. And one guy was about to make a decision to leave my company, which is, he knew was going to get me in trouble in some respect, uh, and go work for uh, Google, I think, over in San Francisco. And um, he comes in the office and he was like, uh, hey, boss, man. Um, and this was coming. Some, some company, my Hispanic friends call me Jefe, or they used to or whatever. They were like, hey, I'm boss, man, or Jefe or whatever. They're like, um, like, can I talk to you for a second? And I was like, yeah, yeah, what's up? Can I talk to the can I talk to the pastor and not the boss? And I was like, huh? OK, I don't know how you're going to talk. I was like, but I understood what they were saying. And he was like, how do you go about making tough life decisions? And he was like, Cause I have a tough decision and I would like for your prayer in this. And I gave the guy some advice that would probably work against me if he just, if, if the Lord told him to go. And he did. He left and went to another company. But I found out through another peer that this guy broke down in tears by the fact that I was able to give him advice that actually might work against the growth of my own team. I'm sharing it with you to just say, um, man, I don't care what it is. Uh, uh, I've just got accustomed to being awkward, praying with and for people. In the, in, the last, in the latter season of my career, I had a little bit of an advantage because I had an office that I could ask people to come into and they would take advantage of that. Um, but also if somebody was out in the parking lot, I was like, hey, can I pray about that? But I, I think what was crucial to the, the, the praying for people real time, because I think that's so important because it really does show care, because what has the world done with prayer? It's just kind of this honorable mention, uh, wishful thinking, blowing out candles on a birthday cake. You know, you know, we hope 
We hope something good happens. Optimism, right? It's just prayer has become a function of optimism. And I think when we pray for people in the moment, and here's what else is powerful about prayer in the moment. And I'm sorry, let me, let me slow this down. Um, and this is feedback. Thank you. Um, I think it was the two of you that told me to slow down, right? Yeah, good. Uh, here's, what, here's what I found to be so powerful about prayer. You would be surprised at how many people have never heard a real, non-scripted, non-Sunday morning Catholic church liturgical conversation with God. And when they hear people pray, they're like, I got to be honest with you, man. You talk to God like you actually know him. <laughs> and I'm telling you, that in itself is a powerful witness. And you haven't even started like piercing the darkness and you haven't done any apologetics. All you did was just pray and people heard how you talked to God, and they recognized that, wait a minute, the eternal, omnipotent, omnipresent, they probably don't use these terms, the big guy upstairs, you know him like that? And it creates culture. So I would say um, pray for people and let them hear you talking to God. Let them hear you talking to God. Um, and and I, I think uh, you're, on, you're on good ground. It's a great way to... I... If you can, you know, if, if you can, because uh, uh, I think at that point, you're also somewhat protecting the privacy of the person. I mean, if they were asking you to pray for something that's kind of uh, could be a, a real issue for them to do that. Um, but, um, yeah, no buts, no caveats. Yeah, if you can, get to a private place. I, I don't know your setting, you know what I mean, your, your workplace. Like, I don't know, because if, like, if, if you work in an environment where even the offices are wide open like that, like, yeah, <laughs> you know, so... Yeah. 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 So I, I would. Um, I don't have a problem praying in public with people who ask for prayer. I don't. Um, I just um, uh, I don't I don't like distractions. And uh, and if a person says and I usually try to enter in with permission, would you mind if we prayed about that right now? Um, or, or whatever. So. You got me on the question time or two. OK. Any other questions? All right, so let's review. For the three people on your list, you have a couple of action items. What are they? I think for each point, I gave something that you could do toward three people on your list. Does anybody remember them? Being prepared to pray for people. Ask them how you can pray for them. Right? We just kind of covered that one. Letting people know what promises you're actively trusting God for. This is the whole faith, like taking up the shield of faith. What else do we have out there? Yeah. Hey, what what gives you value, identity, and purpose, right? So, Rob, my, my question had to do with that. Mm-hmm. So I may not ask one that specific thing, but I always find that when you ask people today, some of those questions, they give you like an answer that everything's fine. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, so, like, what, what's the next step after that? If, if you've got these people on your list, and you're like, and they say, listen, what what gives me value is having a lot of money, and I have a lot of money. Okay. Right, right, right. Yeah. So if someone would say, you know, like, what gives you value? What gives you identity and purposes? What, 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 so, so then I would reverse it, and, and we would ask this oftentimes in, in, in the job, just around other stuff. So what keeps you awake at night? What's the one thing you're concerned about? Because if you're accumulating a stack of cash, uh, you're, you're planning for something, right? So I, I would just look at the other side of the same coin. Uh, if there is anything you're concerned about, you know. I mean, for everybody that's that's um, that's doing well economically now, 
they just recently passed through 08. And either they're on the upswing because they're rebuilding because that was all gone or it's new. You know what I mean? So like, what are they? And I hear the, the guys who talk about money. They're all anticipating another downturn. So if you're, you're kind of in that space with the rich folks uh, or not just rich, but people who are concerned about those things, um, they've got something. Because if you're if you're if you're if you feel fine based on the amount of cash you have, then you're planning from and protecting yourself from something. And if, if God's not infusing how you use it and, and affecting your ideas around stewardship. Yeah. And maybe that becomes a question. So, hey, who you know, because, again, if you say for by and if you say from for and buy something. Um, so after your family's all taken care of, like. What does it look like to, to, to steward that well? You know what I mean? I, so here's what I would ask rich guys when I used to work with them. Um, this guy used to work on a train. His father was a coal miner. Like, it's a classic country western album. Um, you know, like, dad couldn't read, all this other kind of stuff. And he decided that, man, I'm not doing this. I'm going to college, and I'm going to uh, make some of myself. And then he ended up breaking Europe open for us and establishing a lot of our, our business over in Europe. And uh, so it, he had sons roughly around my age. And I said, let me ask you a question. And I was like, how do you go about giving your sons a sense of great work ethic, considering that you're giving them everything. And he said something very powerful. He said, this is an unbeliever. He goes, life has an interesting way of throwing my son's curveballs where there's things that I can't buy them out of. And I was like, man, that's awesome, because I feel that same way in my relationship with the Lord. The Lord is always creating these little wrinkles where no matter how much strength and resources I've built up, there's always something that's working around the defense. I'm always about to get sacked. You know what I mean? So unless I'm Tom Brady. Uh, sorry. <laughs> no. All right. Is it where, where am I? Is this? Is this this Patriot sound or is this Jet sound? What is this? It's split. Oh, sorry. Don't want to. All right. <laughs> all right. Uh, what do we got? What else? A minute. Okay. Father God, we thank you and praise you for our time together and just uh, the questions that we would ask and just some practical measures for making disciples. We thank you, Lord God, and just ask for your help even as we uh, continue on our break and then come back for another segment. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.